Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to episode 138 of the Marathon Running Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about Dr. Seiler's eight-level hierarchy for endurance training. This is the Marathon Running Podcast by Letty and Ryan from We Got The Runs. Join us in our running community for weekly content that is motivational, educational, and inspirational and let the marathon running podcast take you from the starting line to the finish line and beyond hey runners and welcome to episode 138 hey ryan how's it going pretty good how about you Good. How's your running coming along? Ryan is ramping up for his first, well, he's finishing up base training to then jump into a marathon training program. How is that going for you? Um, I th- would say that it's slightly more running than I usually do, but other than that, not much different yet. I think you're running four days a week. So for like a week already. So I ran four times. You ran four times and then tomorrow you have your first longer-ish run coming on, which is a six-miler. So, um, you know, it just goes to show that easing into it is probably the smartest way of, of doing all that. I think so. Definitely is the best way to do it. So we were talking about trying to figure out a topic for today and something interesting to talk about. And uh, you found something. Yes, I found something that's uh, kind of borderline exercise science. That stuff is super fascinating because I I just feel like how cool is it that we do these training programs and then we improve. And if we do it the right way, we just get better and better. And there's so much exercise science data and, and research papers available. So we found Dr. Steven Seiler. If you picture the food pyramid... He did the same thing for what is the best recipe for your endurance training. Is is that how you would describe that too? Kind of. I mean, yeah, it's it's the things that he uses it based on the things that are have established data supporting it versus things that have less established data. And so at the bottom of the pyramid, same with like foods, it's the most important things. And then at the top is the potentially least important things or the things that are not necessarily proven. Yeah, exactly. And so we are going to go into that. But before we do, let's talk about Dr. Steven Seiler a little bit. He is from the United States, but he's actually currently living in Norway. He grew up in Austin, Texas, and he has a PhD. And now he works as a university teacher, researcher, and leader in Norway. And over the years, he served as a research consultant and scientific advisor for a research foundation, sports team, a regional hospital, and the Norwegian Olympic Federation. And he's also known for the 80-20 rule of endurance training. So he has a pretty good background, and I think we just kind of established his credibility so, Letty, I kind of like your analogy to the food pyramid because you can visualize it, I think. But basically, it's like um, 
you know, with the food pyramid, you have things that are less healthy for you or that you should eat more sparingly, like fats, oils, and sweets at the top, the tiny little portion at the top. And then near the bottom, you have like fruits and vegetables or grains making up the larger portion of your diet or what would be more beneficial for you. And so his pyramid is a little different in that it basically is just is distributed by evidence. So the things at the top of the pyramid have less evidence for, you know, proving to be beneficial, whereas things at the bottom of the pyramid are more well-established or have more data based on his accumulation of knowledge as to how you can improve your endurance training. So it's kind of interesting. And there's some things here that I didn't really know about that are, I think, encouraging also and helpful and that goes along with his like 80 20 rule which we'll get into i guess later so why don't we talk about what is at the bottom and then work our way up to the tip of the pyramid so we're gonna talk as as if we're talking about the food pyramid you know how they have the carbs at the bottom because you probably eat the most carbs so let's start at the bottom and then work up to the top so according to him the most important thing for improving your endurance training is the total frequency or volume of training and that's well established in the literature of research according to him so that that's that's kind of interesting so it's basically just the more time you put in the better you'll get which makes sense too it makes a lot of sense especially you can also see by the elites that they run a lot of miles and a lot of the miles they put in they call junk miles garbage miles you're just putting more volume in okay so along that line you know the first thing that comes to mind when you think of how do you improve is just to train more in high volume is that seems like it'd be hard but (laughs) that goes to his 80 20 rule which is kind of was interesting to me and he said that the 80-20 rule basically means that, you know, roughly 80% of the training should be done at low intensity, whereas like the remaining 20% can be done at higher intensity. And, you know, that was kind of interesting to me. I didn't really, I hadn't thought about it, but I didn't really um, think that such a high number or high amounts of low intensity training would be beneficial. So, I mean, whenever I did sports, for like since I'm always like more in the high intensity for the whole time. But um, that's part of the total volume of training is you have to do it without getting injured. And one of the ways to do that is with a high percent low intensity, which also makes it less intimidating. So if you think like, I got to run, you know, like, for instance, you were saying with me, like three miles for five days a week or so. If you had to do that fast each time, it kind of becomes onerous or you know, seems very hard. But if you're like, oh, well, I can just go jog it lightly for 80% of the time, which is the majority of it, and then I can run faster for only 20%, it's like, okay, well, maybe that's more doable. And and that's actually the benef- the more beneficial way to do it, which is interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I also agree with you with the surprise factor because that was something I had to learn as well because we're always taught that we get better at what we practice and then how will you run faster during your race if that's not something you practice. So you're just practicing running, but you're practicing slow running. So it doesn't really quite make sense to us. And 
I also agree with you when you said that it it makes it less dreading because it feels like when you start training that way where you have a lot of slow runs and then some fast ones, it almost feels like you're engaging in a different type of sport because you're approaching your runs completely different. You have one day where you have your slow running shoes on and you listen to podcasts and then you have, you know, your, your fart legs or whatever where you have to run faster and you play fast music. So it almost feels like it's a completely different sport to me. Yeah, and it's it, and like you alluded to a bit, it's a bit counterintuitive because you think um, you just have to run faster to get faster all the time, or run high intensity to get faster all the time. And I think um, you know that's it's interesting that that's actually not the case. I mean, I know the body needs variation and other stuff too, but I think it's more about you know, putting in the mileage or the time without getting injured. And the way to do that is with low intensity. Um, one, we were listening to a podcast of his. It was interesting that basically he said that a lot of the, and it makes a lot of sense to me, a lot of the um, academic centers that do research, they usually all always do it with young, relatively fit individuals, you know, that are in college because it's part of being in classes is to participate in this research activities, but they all pretty much follow the eight week schedule of um, the you know semesters of college, and so they never really did more long term evaluation or training of these. And so that's what he was saying is a lot of this stuff um, stems from that kind of outline, and that in that setting, in a short period of time of only eight weeks, a high intensity training works. But you quickly plateau after that. And then his research looking into more of the um, elite athletes that spend more time training realized that that's not, you know, that high intensity training for a long period of time doesn't work and you end up just plateauing. And that this 80-20 that he, he's proposing is uh, more beneficial for the long term and improving and actually improving more than the other which is which is really fascinating and kind of interesting but as we're talking kind of the things that we're like we're talking about the volume is the bottom and then high intensity training is still important that's also in there and well established to be beneficial that's above you know on the pyramid smaller or less importance in his pyramid compared to the volume but also the training intensity distribution is also well-established, and that's just above the high-intensity training. So that kind of goes along with this 80-20 thing. Yeah, so we already covered the first bottom three, basically. So we have the bottom one, which is a total frequency volume of training. The second one from that is the high-intensity training. And then where we have the training intensity distribution one, which we also we kind of talked about all three of them. And um, Seller actually made a name for himself by discovering this 80-20 rule of endurance training, which is exactly what we talked about. It talks about that the endurance athlete improves the most when they go through 80% of their training at low intensity and the remaining 20%, give or take, at a moderate or high intensity so when we put that uh, in, into, into you know, our lives, if you are a runner that runs 50 miles on the peaks, peak weeks of your marathon out of the 50 miles, it's really only 10 miles that you run at a high intensity. And normally we spread that out, usually don't run them at a chunk. And you can do the math. You know, you can, if you do 40 miles a week, then, you know, divide it by 100, take it times 20 and then there's your 20%. So 
Those are the three most important parts or the most well-established data-driven ways to improve your endurance. And then a lot of these other things are less proven. And so what's next on the pyramid? So the next one is the general periodization details. What does that mean? I believe that just means periodization. I mean... <laughs> that's, I just, that's, you just repeated the word. But yeah, so periodization is a cyclical method of planning and managing athletic or physical training and involves progressive cycling of various aspects of a training program during a specific period. So basically, you're just mixing it up as you go along. And what he said, you know, is basically it's, it is important to mix things up. Your body typically tends to adapt to anything that's you know, um, continuous or the same. But he said that the details of mixing it up don't really matter much. So that's where it kind of falls in the, in the um, data-driven or importance. It's unclear but likely overrated. So um, you don't necessarily need to have this specific changing up of your training program, but just mixing it up in general is probably beneficial. And so like, like we said, we're going up the pyramid now, so these things are going to be less important. Right, but it's probably still important to, you know, I know how they have at a, in a marathon training program, you have two or three weeks of adding mileage and intensity, and then you have a week of, we call it cut down week, where you have less of it to allow your body to recover a little bit. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting because I guess it's all kind of, you know, there's always different training programs that are out there, and like you've, we've had podcasts on different ones and stuff too, and, um, it really kind of shows that a lot of this is you could basically just tell someone just run a lot and that would probably be the best training program for them in a sense. And that all these little details that are, you know, filled in later are maybe less important, but just having some variation or other things is beneficial. Right. And, and all those other details are probably also very specific to the particular runner, to, you know, taking into consideration age, weight, and all that stuff. And then also, of course, it's important that when you start running, just like you are starting to train, that you don't do too much too soon, because your body has to be able to handle it and, and not get injured. At the same time, there are a lot of rules that don't have any scientific proof, like a lot of coaches say never uh, never increase your week by more than 10%. And there is no real data to tell you not to do it. At the same time, if you go from not running to, you know, 50-mile weeks in a month, then you might get injured. Yeah, I mean, and then that also kind of shows to the benefits of a, you know, a coach that has some experience that can maybe tailor the program for how you're feeling or what's going on as opposed to just a online running trade you know program that doesn't account for variations in in your fitness or your health yeah exactly so what's next so the next one here is sports specific and micro periodization schemes so ryan <laughs> since you're so good at explaining this maybe you can go through that one as well so this one is you know, not well established, but likely modest benefit or effect. Um, in his, this is, this is just giving you his like rankings of them too. So he was saying it doesn't really matter um, too much whether you schedule your cover weeks every third week or fourth week, but it's important to have, you know, rest and recovery. 
you don't want to accumulate too much fatigue over extended periods of time that just, you know, decrease your ability to, to train or improve. And he basically kind of goes back to the same thing as like the general periodization where it's just like the details are, are less important, but just having the variation or variety in there is, is important. Oh, okay. So number four and number five are kind of the same thing, but the first one was talking more about how you change it up in the whole year. And then this one is more for like a marathon training program. And, you know, because you mentioned taking that recovery week every three to four weeks. And so, you know, that's... Yeah, I think he said in there, like, it's it's more sports specific or micro periodization. So shorter time period or within like, you know, shorter periods of training and also sports specific as opposed to just generalized Yeah. So he acknowledges that rest and recovery are obviously very important, but it doesn't really matter, you know, to, to be super specific and saying it has to be every three weeks or four weeks. I'm sure, you know, it's different for every athlete and also depending on the event that you're training for, which is also kind of funny because, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of people out there who have their regimen and they swear by it and it might work for them. But I also feel like if you look at fast athletes that, you know, have full-time jobs and still manage to run super fast. A lot of them don't have these regimens and things that they do. They just run a lot when they can and don't really pay attention that much to their gear and, and uh, their training. They just kind of go by feel. If they're tired, they take a rest day and the rest of the time they just, you know, go for it. That's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you're getting the time in, the mileage in, I guess. Kind of goes to show that it's not as specific or it doesn't have to be so regimented. Mm -hmm. So next on the list is training stimuli enhancement, um, like altitude training, heat training, things like that. And it says it's potentially important effects. This is the evidence, strength of evidence, potentially important effects, but individual and condition specific. So I think, um, definitely can be beneficial to some people. Um, you know, if you're going to be running a Honolulu marathon, but you're training in like Canada where it's cold, it's probably going to be really difficult for you to run a marathon in the humid and hot weather when you're used to training cold all the time. Yeah. You get used to your surroundings As you guys know, we live in Florida, so we're used to the humidity. And there is that saying again, you know, the humidity, the heat is the poor man's altitude because it kind of has a similar effect because you're having to breathe in this air. Um, but yeah, so a lot of people go and train in hot altitude. And I think it's obvious. Hot altitude? And high altitude. And it's obvious that it helps them because they have more red blood cells being able to carry oxygen through their body. And you probably have the same effect when you're training in the humidity because you're learning how to breathe in that. And then, I mean, I don't know if it happened to you before, but after running here and then traveling somewhere like California, you get there and you're like, wow, I can breathe. And your runs just feel so much easier, even though we're at sea level here. Yeah. And there's definitely, with altitude training, there's definitely, um, it's known to increase your body's uh, red blood cell count because your body tries to compensate for the lack of oxygen available. So it produces more red blood cells. And then if you go from that high altitude then to a lower altitude, now you have 
increase oxygen carrying capacity in your blood so you could potentially perform better in endurance and sure there's similar physiological um, changes related to running in the heat that your body gets used to so along the lines of that ryan you know the training stimuli enhancement when the athletes that engage in doping inject themselves with red blood cells that they've drawn before do you think that that really makes that much of a difference or is it just, you know, a little part of it? Because obviously those are banned for a reason, those practices. Yeah, so you're talking, so a lot of that has to do with, I think, cycling. I'm sure that does in running also. But so there's blood doping with medication, which is like a chemotherapy drug, and it actually just increases your red blood cell count. There's also a form of blood doping where they pull off blood, store it, And then when your body reestablishes your normal red blood cell count and before a race, you re-inject that blood that you've been storing and now your blood cell count's higher. Um, and then there's another form of just training in high altitude because your body is needs more oxygen or feels that it needs more oxygen because it can't get as much from the air. So it just increases its red blood cell count. I don't know how much of how much of a benefit it provides in any of those sports exactly. Although when you are at the elite level or the very top level, just any small differences can, can make a significant difference in terms of your placement or, you know, where you are on the podium per se. Yeah. Interesting, huh? Interesting stuff. So for the next one, we have pace training and that is uh, fitness is not only determined by race performance to get the most benefit from any level of fitness in competition an athlete must pace him or herself effectively and this objective is aided by the practices of pacing and training which may also serve to stimulate specific um pace fitness adaptions and that's through you know practice kind of what we were talking about earlier you think that you would have to train at a certain pace to stimulate or simulate sorry the uh, specific race for adaptations and so he he says that the strength of evidence for this is potentially decisive if everything else is done right it's also near the top of the pyramid or on the minimal level of importance of your training so much less important than doing just the volume so you can do pay you can do race or pace training but if you don't put in a lot of miles it's not really going to be much benefit to you yes it has to go hand in hand with the bottom three and and then the other ones and i guess we'll talk about that later because we're going to talk about some stuff that's not on his chart and why but um just take a mental note because i think uh you know pace training is a way of also mentally battling what you can foresee happening to what what happens with your brain when you get tired but let's talk about that you know after we're done with the nine elements of of this uh fitness pyramid so to speak so the next one on the list is uh training taper so i always heard you talk about taper a lot with all your training programs oh it's time to taper it's time to taper but it is the least important on the pyramid of scales and the evidence or strength of evidence is potentially decisive if you have one isolated competition everything else is done right and so i think tapering or somewhat is probably important and um we were listening like i said to one of his conversations um that said 
if you are tired because of your training, which your training should always, you should always be at some state of being fatigued because you're working hard to try to get better. If you are at a state of fatigue when you're trying to run your best race, it's at a, it's to your disadvantage because now you're not your freshest, you know, to go out there and race your fastest. You're kind of a little bit tired from all the training you've been doing. And so that's the idea behind doing the taper is that you taper the amount of training down a little bit right before your competition and that allows you to be fresh for the day of competition and hopefully perform your best. Um, but he also said that it's a difficult thing because you want to make sure you time it appropriately and that could be potentially hard to do. Yeah, and I like how you kind of when you said if everything else is done right, because a lot of us runners take our marathon cycle very serious and we follow everything to the T. We try to be, you know, on the top of our game when it comes to everything else. So normally most of the stuff we do has been done right. And when you do train for a marathon, you know, a couple of weeks beforehand, it's almost like you experience some kind of, oh my gosh, I'm just so done. And then it's time for taper. That's why I always love the taper because it feels like, wow, I just worked so hard. The process is, 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 is fatigue. And then you get there and then you taper off. And then it feels like when you come back and run your marathon, it just feels like you're a lot stronger than you were for your long and hard runs while you were training. Yeah, I can definitely see that being a benefit, even mentally, not even physically. Okay, so that wraps up the pyramid that you're we were talking about. Um, the you know eight level pyramid hierarchy of uh, you know endurance training. But I'm sure that a lot of the listeners, including myself, are wondering. Okay, so if that includes what we need to be best at endurance, why in the world is mental training and strength training not on that? And I know you read about that, Ryan. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. So, I mean, I can, I remember just like I said, listening to one of his other podcasts, he was saying that the, the data supporting uh, strength training was mixed and that there's some of the very, um, high level endurance athletes did like zero strength training at all. And they were very, very high level still. And then others would be, swear by the fact that they had to do strength training along with their endurance training. And so um, that's why I guess he said he left it out of his pyramid altogether is just because there wasn't, uh, doesn't seem to be enough evidence to support it benefiting people. So if you really don't like strength training, you probably can just avoid it mostly. And if you're only doing endurance and if you like strength training, then you should do it because they're high level athletes do both. What is your thought, though, as now I'm going to ask you as a physician, um, on strength training for injury prevention? Don't you think there's some kind of benefit or shouldn't there be some kind of, you know, link benefits for runners that also do strength training? I, I don't know. I mean, I, don't, I think that like um, you're doing training regardless. You're doing endurance training, which is, you know, of a form of increasing your strength. It's not, I think, you know, specific strength strength training with like weights or plyometrics or other things. I, I don't know if, if the data doesn't support that benefiting an endurance athlete, I really don't think you probably need to do it because you are 
you're still out there, you're still running, you're still, you know, conditioning your muscles, you're just not doing it for, you know, strength specifically. And so I don't, I don't know that it would improve your, um, you know, likelihood of being injured or decrease your likelihood of being injured or anything. I think more likely than not, just the low intensity training or that proportion 80 to 20 low intensity versus high intensity would probably be the most beneficial for injury prevention because you're conditioning in that 80 low, slow miles, low intensity, you're conditioning all your body parts to handle the 20% high intensity. And I think that's probably one of the better um, injury prevention methods. And that, of course, is valid for the runners who do not have a current injury. Of course, if you do have a current injury, you might have to do some rehab and, 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 you know, specific strength training for those injury areas. So how did you like, um, how did you like his eight level hierarchy? What do you think about it? What are your thoughts? Um, to me, it seems, uh, you know, again, I would defer to the expert, you know, he's, got a PhD in, you know, exercise science, but I always like to, you know, my knowledge is different, but I like to think of, does it make sense to me? And do I think that's logical? And I, yeah, I think so with his, it's a lot of that stuff does make a lot of sense. And so, um, it is to me believable even without looking it up, but obviously do your own research and look at the data. Cause that's the best way um, that you can improve instead of just following some somebody else's feelings or thoughts and what they think is best. You know, it's better to look at what actually has been researched. Because even as we alluded to earlier, a lot of these people's impression of what might work can sometimes be skewed. Like, like I referred to the, the um, college athletes that trained only for eight weeks and they trained at like moderate intensity for eight weeks and they improved. So they think, oh, well, that works. It works in every situation. And no, it doesn't necessarily, according to the research that he did. It works for eight weeks, but if you do longer than eight weeks, you know, you tend to plateau and it doesn't necessarily work. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Perfect. So I guess that wraps it up. Um, I think we're going to post the pyramid on Instagram. So you listeners, if you want to see it, go to at running podcast and we will have that there this coming Monday when this episode comes out. Um, yeah. And thank you, Ryan, for doing this episode with me. I had a lot of fun researching that with you. It was, I liked it too. It was interesting. I think he makes a lot of sense. And I would probably change some of the things I do, even based on what he was saying with the level of intensity. Yep. All right. So with that, have a happy week of running. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, head to www.runningpodcast.us. And as always, have a great week of running.